formal treason charges and denied bail for Evan Gershkovich. A rejected appeal from opposition politician Ilya Yashin, who's serving an eight-and-a-half-year prison sentence for spreading supposed disinformation about Russian war atrocities in Ukraine. Reportedly new felony charges against jailed anti-corruption icon Alexei Navalny. And 25 years behind bars for Vladimir Karamuza, the anti-Kremlin politician who helped lobby into existence the Magnitsky Act, which authorizes the American government to sanction foreign government officials around the world, especially and originally in Russia, who are human rights offenders, freezing their assets and banning them from entering the U.S. These courtroom news headlines are all from just the past few days. And this doesn't even touch on the thousands of cases against less prominent, sometimes nearly invisible activists and even apolitical types who find themselves caught in the teeth of Russia's increasingly brutal prosecution and persecution of political disloyalty. Last year alone, Russian courts fined people more than 4,400 times for a total of 151.3 million rubles, almost 2 million U.S. dollars, for the misdemeanor speech offense of discrediting the army, which is the legal mumbo-jumbo the state uses to punish anyone who even vaguely criticizes the invasion of Ukraine. Journalists reported earlier this week that the authorities have started targeting dozens of young people for railway vandalism, potentially aimed at disrupting Russia's capacity to deliver men and materiel to the front lines. Utilizing stricter penalties that lawmakers recently adopted, prosecutors often start with less serious charges before requalifying these cases as incidents of terrorism and sabotage. As political persecution in Russia escalates to something resembling moments from the Stalinist period, supporting the legal system's victims and simply understanding its intricacies becomes matters of life and death. And that is at the center of work by the journalists, lawyers and activists who make up a project in Russia called Ovede Info. And this organization is the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On this week's episode of the podcast, I spoke to Dan Storiev, a journalist, human rights activist, and the managing editor of Ovede Info's own English language edition, where he writes the Dissident Digest, a weekly newsletter summarizing and explaining major events in Russia's domestic political repressions. It's free to subscribe, and I encourage everybody to sign up. You can find the hyperlink to go do so in the description of this podcast episode. Now, before we get to Dan, let me hit you with a brief message from my colleague, Eilish. Eilish Hart here, the editor of The Beat, a weekly newsletter from Medusa that brings you in-depth reporting and original analysis on developments in Central and Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. More than 5,000 people from around the world have subscribed to our newsletter since we launched in September 2022. And I'm always glad to see that people are sharing our stories, via email forwarding or on social media. For our readers inside Russia, however, sharing issues of The Beat simply isn't worth the risk. Earlier this year, the Russian authorities designated Medusa as an undesirable organization, outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a national security threat. In other words, all of our work, from our investigative reports and our podcasts, to our social media posts and our newsletters like The Beat, it's all a crime now inside Russia. And anyone living in Russia who shares our work or donates money to our crowdfunding campaign risks criminal charges that could land them in prison for years. 
With this in mind, I'd like to remind listeners that support from our international audience has never been more important. Your donations sustain our work now more than ever, so please contribute if you can and help spread the word about our crowdfunding campaign. And of course, tell your friends to subscribe to The Beat. Okay, let's get back to this week's show. Ovede Info tracks the arrest of people across Russia on political charges. The organization provides legal assistance of various kinds to those swept up in these repressions. So what kind of charges are the most common today in these cases? Are suspects prosecuted randomly or selectively? How are human rights activists capable of doing anything in the current circumstances, given that the Putin regime seems to border on totalitarianism at times? I put all these questions to Dan, but before we got to all those issues, I asked him to describe in his own words what Ovede Info actually does. The English, the English dimension of what we do is also really important, and I might be a bit biased because I am the English dimension, essentially. I run, I run the English dimension. And uh, it really emerged after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and we, where we really try to do as much outreach into the West as possible, because it's really important for us to kind of shed the light on Kremlin's domestic brutality, but also highlight the fact that you know, Russians aren't some kind of mindless orcs as some narratives tend to be these days. You know, Russians are, you know, people who are protesting against this unjust war, protesting against these unjust repressions uh, within their own country and outside of their own country as well. Our English, our English department, you know, we make sure that our materials are translated so that people can read our materials out of Russia. We also launch on ki- all kinds of projects. Our newsletter, The Dissident Digest, please subscribe, by the way. Uh, the Dissident Digest is a huge part of that. We try to bring as many news out of Russia straight to straight to the Western audience, or straight to English-speaking audience. We're going to have a lot of kind of exciting things in stock. You know, we also participate in conferences and, uh, you know, do podcasts and this kind of stuff. All of this with the goal of shaping the global response to Putin's repressions, Putin's repressions in Russia, because we believe that without this repressive iceberg, without these domestic repressions, without the hollowing out and near demolishing of Russian civil society, the war in Ukraine would not have been possible in the first place. For listeners who are not familiar with Ovide Info, what is it in your in your words? Like, how would you say you're like you're in an elevator with, uh, I don't know, Joe Biden or some European official, and like you really want them to understand, you know, what or let's or Beyonce, just like some somebody important <laughs> in the West, um, and you want to you want to uh, convey to them like what this project is, but you're in an elevator, so you've only got you know a little bit. What would you tell them? You want you want to give me an elevator pitch for Ovide Info? That's right. Yeah, Ovide sure. Info, so, yeah. so Ovide Info, or OI as we call it for short, is an integral part of Russian civil society at this point. Before we came on the stage back in you know 2011, it used to be the case that if you get detained in Russia, if you get detained at a protest, you just you you've got to face the repressive regime kind of on your own. That's where Ovide Info comes in. What we do is we make sure that you never face the machine without help, right? So you got, we have a 24 hour call line. So, you know, if you get, if you get arrested, if you get detained, 
whatever you can call us, you can inform us, and we're going to make sure that we're going to provide you some legal aid. We're going to send you an affiliate lawyer in most cases, not all cases, but most cases. And we're going to make sure that your case is exposed in the media. So our motto is information protects. And we are here really to kind of provide this vital, really vital element in, in civil society that if you get detained, if you get captured by, uh, by the authorities, you're not going to be alone. We're going to be here to support you. And is that service or is that support available to literally anybody who's arrested or do you have to qualify somehow? Do you have to be like a political prisoner or can you be somebody who murdered six people? Like what's the criteria? Well, yeah, if you, if you murder six people, that's probably not the case. We mostly focus on, uh, you, <laughs> you can scratch probably out of it. It's definitely not the case. If you murder six people, bad, not cool. We don't support yeah. that. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, if you're, you know, uh, we we focus on freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. So if you are, you know, out there, if you're protesting the war, if you are out there on the street and you're standing with a, a slogan saying something along the lines of "No to war," and then you know a bunch of blokes grab you, bring you to the detention center, you know, then we're there. We can assist you. We can help you in one way or the other. Uh, we are constantly overloaded. We have a huge staff. We have. Uh, you know, and I'm going to give you an org chart or anything like that because we have to be secretive about some parts of our organization. But in general, we have 7,000 volunteers all over the world, and we have around 300 people, lawyers still working on the ground, like affiliate lawyers still working on the ground in Russia in order to you know, protect people who are unjustly persecuted by the Kremlin's repressive machine. What kind of help is still possible in today's environment? Because I'm sure that, I mean, I would imagine that a lot of people, if they hear, oh, there's this human rights grassroots organization with, with all these volunteers inside Russia, outside of Russia, and they're working to provide legal representation and advice to people arrested for these, these like speech crimes and political offenses. A lot of people would say, how is it possible? Like Russia is a Stalinist country now, essentially. Like, what could these people possibly do? So like, what are some of the forms of support that Bovide Info is, is capable of providing still. This kind of goes back to really what we are about as an organization, kind of our, the impetus for our creation back in 2011 and sort of how we operate, you know, what motivates us. Russian repressions as they are today, they aren't unique. They didn't come out of nowhere, right? It's that what's happening today is the tip of the long-standing repressive iceberg. It's a type of repressions which started, you know, decades ago when Putin just came into power. Yeah. And all this time, you know, they've been doing their best, the authorities have been doing their best to destroy the Russian civil society. And what we do, what our goal is, what our role is really, is to provide coverage and there is this Russian word that is normally translated as coverage, right? To osvishet something. Whereas, you know, the right way to translate it would be to kind of shed the light, literally to shed the light on something, to expose something, to put something in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because repressions and the destruction of civil society normally happens in the dark. It happens when no one is watching. Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness, you know, the famous, the famous mother. And this is, you know, this is kind of where we come in to help. We shine a spotlight 
into this darkness, into what's happening within the Russian prison system, within the Russian court system, that people aren't alone facing the system alone. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, a person is magically getting whisked out of the court system and, you know, lands somewhere safely in, in, in Riga or something like that. That's not really what we do. What our help is really is that we are putting as much eyes, as much attention on the specific case as we can, as much spotlight on the case as we can. And that means that the authorities, they feel this pressure. So it's less likely that they're going to blatantly violate human rights, right? Because Russian authorities, it's not like, I don't know, it's not like North Korea quite yet, if you will, where, you know, they can just kind of drag you and do whatever with you. Mm-hmm. They still can they they can still feel the sort of societal pressure that's building up when you know a lot of people are watching, and we know this because they get extremely nervous when a lot of people are watching. You know, whenever you know there is a loud court proceeding or anything like that, loud court hearing, and a lot of people are there, a lot of journalists are there. Authorities get really really nervous. They don't they don't like a lot of people watching, and just generally, you know, imagine that you are. Hopefully nothing like that's ever going to happen to you or to any of our listeners. You know, if you're thrown into a detention facility somewhere in Moscow and you're just completely alone, there is nobody there to help you. We are here there to facilitate help. You know, we're going to help you find a lawyer. Our affiliate lawyer will come in. They make sure you get what you need. You make, you know, maybe you need some, some kind of special food. Maybe you want your favorite book. Or, you know, maybe you want, to, you want to talk to your parents or your kids or whatever. That's, you know, that's what we're for. That we're going we're gonna to kind of provide for that. Mm-hmm. And this is just the facet of what we do, right? But this is kind of the most important thing that we do on the ground. There is also the global aspect to our operations. And we work with organizations all over the world, including, you know, the UN, the European, the European Union, what have you where we lobby for human rights, where we ensure that the Kremlin is held accountable for its domestic repressions, where we help shape the global response to the Kremlin. And in terms of the cases that Ovidinfo is involved in, and I assume this this probably applies to nowadays, especially these in the anti-war prosecutions and so on, are the cases that you're seeing, do they involve defendants who are selected sort of randomly, or is it like a particular group of people that are usually prosecuted, or like, is it just kind of everybody? Like, how selective is Russia's enforcement of all these new anti-war crackdown laws? This is a really, this is a really good question. Thanks for asking this, because generally when people talk about Russia, when people talk about Russian protests, this has always been a pet peeve of mine. I've wrote my Oxford dissertation on protests in Eastern Europe. And uh, I, uh, <laughs> you know, people always think, oh, you know, it's just, you know, a bunch of kids in Moscow who does this kind of stuff, right? It's just a bunch of, you know, English speaking, bright eyed children from nice universities in Moscow who go out in the streets. What we're seeing in, in the reality is that, of course, Moscow has a whole lot of arrests because Moscow has a lot of people and, you know, there is a lot of kind of media attention there. People in Moscow would know about OVD Info. Somebody in Yakutsk, for example, might not necessarily have heard of us. So there is that that aspect here. But in general, we're seeing that an extremely diverse range of people is getting persecuted because 
what's happening right now is that this campaign of pressure, this crackdown by the Kremlin's regime against its own population, it's kind of pushing every other Russian into becoming a dissident. You know, you don't really have a private space, if you will, right? Because, you know, you can get reported for talking in a cafe. There is, um, I was just editing an article which just came out about a lady in Moscow who just entered in an altercation in the cafe. It's, you know, kind of like a Monday in altercation when somebody was disparaging Ukrainians and she was like, well, you probably shouldn't say that. That that sounds horrible. And uh, she, she, was, she was brought into, into the station and she was fine and everything. And then there, there was a story of a factory mechanic who also ran into some trouble with the law because he was standing up against the war and he ended up getting fired from his job. So there is, you know, people from all walks of life, firemen, mechanics, designers, even cops themselves, right? They can sort of, they, they enter in this confrontation with the regime because everyone is pressured into, into opposing this crackdown. And when you talk about this pressure and these prosecutions, are the statutes in question, are they typically this you know, discrediting the army or the armed forces or now the volunteers and the participants? Is it this like misdemeanor offense of discrediting or like what are the statutes, whether civil or, or criminal or whatever, like what are the laws in question that are typically cited in these, in these offenses that, that listeners should know about? So fakes and discrediting, discrediting the Russian army, these are kind of the two big ones. Mm -hmm. the, the Russian authorities, they did their best to essentially criminalize protest and criticizing the war. Right. So right now in Russia, and this is something that people don't, might not necessarily understand in the West where, you know, people say, oh, you know, why don't Russians just tell Putin, please stop this war. Why don't they just vote? Why don't they just do, you know, this and that? The problem is that the act of protest in itself is criminalized because you have to get approval from the government to conduct a protest. And then- Is that still justified as the COVID restriction or is that now part of the- I, I think that's, I mean, they, they, can, they can twist it every which way. Uh, yeah, in in yeah, general, yeah. they can just say, oh, you know, don't, don't do it. Like COVID restriction was a big thing, but- now we really, and this is this is something I, I I spoke about it on the on the air the podcast there today, and you know we're really getting into this kind of the Stalinist era where it used to be the case that you know under Stalin Soviet authorities would work under the motto of if there is a man you can find an article to charge to charge that man under right. And this is kind of, you know, this is kind of where we're going now. It doesn't really matter what they charge you with. They're just going to charge you anyway. That's sort of, that is the unfortunate reality of this, of these things. Do you kind of urge people to not get hung up on the, on the like legalities or the, the supposed legalities of these cases? I know that a lot of the conversation around Evan Gershkovich is like, oh, well, don't talk too much about, this is in terms of like sort of advice to people either reporting on it or talking about it publicly. It's like, well, don't get hung up on the treason stuff. It's all fabricated anyway. You should focus on this, that, and the other thing. Like in terms of your advice to people who are reading about these various, you know, political charges, do you think they should pay attention to like the, the specific legal statutes that are being cited in these cases? Or is that sort of playing into the hands of the regime? I think it's still good to understand. No, I think it's still good to understand those things. Uh -huh. I mean, we're a little biased because, I mean, listen, we are 
you know, first and foremost, we are an organization which works within this kind of yeah. legal field, right? I mean, this is how we started. We provide legal aid, we provide lawyers and, and, so, on and so forth. Yeah. And I, I think if you are, you know, if you're a Western journalist, it's good for you to have, or, you know, if you just want to learn more about Russia, it's good for you to have a kind of a general understanding because these laws, they are real poorly written, right? Because they're written explicitly in such a way that you can apply them with the broadest possible stroke. But still, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't kind of pay attention and understand them because they provide an important window into the thinking of the regime, right? Into the thinking of the authorities. And, you know, of course, if you get charged under this article, you're getting this sentence. If you charge under that article, you're getting this this fine. So in general, right. it's good to understand, you know, what means what. Well, let me ask you about a specific case with Vladimir Karimuzad. He was just sentenced to 25 years in prison. And it's one of these particularly outrageous cases. It's a prominent individual and it's an especially long prison sentence. What makes this case so extreme? Why, why, why so long? Like, what's the nature of the charges against him? Like, what, what do you make of this case? Right, so the Karamurza case, the 25 years in prison, they really threw the book at him. Yeah. And part of it, you know, you could really see this as a revenge story because the guy who, who sentenced Karamurza, the, the, the judge in the case was also was sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act that Karamurzar himself lobbied in the United States in relation to the death of Sergei Magnitsky. Why is it such a long why why such a long sentence? In general, I think it is a signal. Mm-hmm. It is a signal that things are getting worse and that nobody is safe. Russian authorities, they used to work under a specific set, you you could call it that. And people, this is a contentious point that I'm going to make. But in general, you know, if you were, for example, a Western journalist, as you know, as I used to be working in in Russia, you could operate under. You sort of you felt like you were operating under a set of rules. You know, things were tough, but things were at the same time relatively predictable. The message that the Kremlin is sending now to journalists, to Westerners, to and first and foremost to Russians, is that you are no longer safe. If you want to, you know, go out against us, if you want to oppose the war in one way or the other, you are no longer safe. It doesn't matter if you're an American, as Gershkovich was. It doesn't matter if you're dual national with the UK, as Karamurza is. You're still going to get screwed. We're still going to get you. We're still going to put you behind bars. And this is a really scary thought. And, you know, this is something that other journalists who worked in Russia have echoed. And I can, you know, I only agree with that. I mean, I have very recently worked in Ukraine, sort of, you know, Izum and the Kharkiv area. And I felt myself relatively safer there than I, I, I would feel if I was working, you know, in Moscow, because... You know, if you're if you're doing the work in the war zone, if you're doing your work in the war zone, you can prepare for things and you kind of know what to expect. You know, you got your flak jacket, you got the armor, you got your fixers and all. When you're working in Russia these days, it's sort of like, oh, it's unpredictable. You just you're gonna get you like you're gonna get snatched like like Gershkovich was. And this is this is truly horrifying stuff. In terms of prison life, 
Qadir Mirza has spent the last year or so in pretrial detention, and now he's going to be sent to some kind of prison colony or something. What are the conditions like here? Like, what, what, when people hear that, what should they expect? Like, what should they, what should they picture? A lot of people probably like their only knowledge of Russian prisons is like some scene out of a movie with the gulag, and like, you know, like what, what, what's the modern day reality? I mean, that's the the gulag image is unfortunately somewhat accurate. I mean, obviously, it's not like you know, it's not like you were in the barack and there is bunch of guys standing over you with, you know, hammer and sickle and everything like that. But in general, this total disregard to human dignity, it's very much there. It's very similar to the way the gulags operated. Kara mm-hmm. Murza, you know, he's been poisoned twice, according to Bellingcat, by the same people as that poisoned Navalny. And he has you know he's he's seriously ill you could you could say that he has a disability that was severely worsened by the conditions that he was in while in pretrial detention you know he's got issues with his limbs these days he's in really bad state his health isn't really good i mean you know look at navalny he's lost like he's lost a whole lot of weight in prison he's uh, you know his kind of uh, health conditions have worsened as well there was the case of Maria Panamarenka, who's a journalist, and she was detained and put in prison for also this sort of basically just talking about the war and covering the war. And she attempted suicide because she, you know, she's got mental health issues, and they put her in a cell that didn't have sunlight in, so she wasn't exposed to sunlight at all, which is, you know, considered torture in some places. So this is, you know, these these are the kind of realities that you're faced with. And of course, you know, this is again why our work over the info and is so important. And, you know, journalists like yourselves are so, yourself is so important. Because what we do is we put these things into spotlight. And it really makes people who run these prisons nervous. Because if you're kind of forgotten, if you're left alone in this darkness, then they can do all kinds of horrible things with you. And we all know what kind of horrible things people, uh, what kind of horrible things happen in Russian prisons, everything from torture to rape to all sorts of uh, denigrating things. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.